lays everything bare before you. Lord, we thank you that you see everything in our hearts, and yet you love us tremendously. We thank you that you are intimately acquainted with every detail of our lives. We thank you that when we face hardship, whether it be physical or health-wise or financial or, or anything, we can always put our faith and trust in you. We can always rely on you. We can always lean on you. We know that you are our rock. We know that you keep every promise you make. And we know that even when things look impossible, you will still make a way. We thank you for all the many promises you give to us in your word. Thank you for the promise that when we come to you and we ask you for forgiveness of our sins and we repent and we say, I want to give you my life, that you're, you are faithful. You will always forgive us and you will always welcome us into your family. And Lord, we thank you for the promise of knowing that you will return. Behold, I am coming quickly, the Lord Jesus says, to which we say, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an article online entitled, 15 Ridiculous Jobs So Useless You Won't Believe They Exist. It's kind of amusing to go through. <laughs> Here are a few that made me chuckle to myself the most as I, as I was reading through them. You've heard the, the expression in response to a very boring situation, it's like watching paint dry. Right? You've heard that expression before? Okay. Well, in the UK, there is a man who is a professional paint-drying watcher. This is not him. This is just another funny picture I found. Okay. He works for a paint company, paints a row of paint on a piece of cardboard, and then watches it with a running stopwatch to see how quickly it dries. He's been doing this for decades. I like this quote from him. Watching paint dry sounds quite easy, but it can be stressful at times. The second job I got a kick out, uh, a kick out of in this article is the professional sleeper. One can test out different mattresses or participate in a scientific research study to see how well you sleep in different situations and make money and it be your job from just sleeping. Where do you sign up for that job, huh? You wish that was out on the lobby table, the sign-up sheet for that. Here's the third one. A professional taster. And you might say, well, that sounds pretty good. But wait for it for pet food. These are actual humans whose professional job it is to taste test different kinds of pet food. I don't know why it matters to them what it tastes like to them, but apparently it does to these brands. I'm wondering what the preferred qualifications listed on Indeed.com for this job listing would include, and is a college degree required for this? I don't know. In our parable this morning, Jesus again references his return for his church and references how that should affect our lives now and what we should be doing in light of his imminent return. But what I want to focus on today is the specifics of that. You'll see what I mean. Like I said a couple weeks ago, we covered the majority of Jesus' parables out of the Gospel of Matthew. But that's not the entirety of the list of parables Jesus tells in the New Testament. There are a couple in the Gospel of Mark that are not found in Matthew. 
We covered the first one, the one about the farmer planting seeds and God growing Jesus' kingdom. We covered that one last week. The second one in Mark is the one we'll cover today. Mark gives a similar account to Matthew 24's of Jesus' sermon on end times events in Mark chapter 13. That's the chapter we're going to be looking at today. And like Matthew's account, there is a lingui- if, you, if you want to turn your Bible already to, Math- to, to Mark chapter 13, you'll see that there is a linguistic distinction between what Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27, and then what he talks about in Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 37. If you brought your, like I said, if you brought your Bible with you today, turn to Mark 13. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. If you don't want to reach out that far, surely you brought a smartphone with you. Look it up on your favorite Bible app and look it up that way. Mark 13. You'll see from verses 24 through 27, Jesus uses the phrase, in those days. Right? You see that? He uses the, the phrase, in those days. Plural which when we talked about this, about Matthew 24, it connects back to verses 14 through 23 in talking about the great tribulation and then his full second coming that follows that. In those days, plural, after the tribulation. In other words, as many conservative Bible scholars point out, what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 27 is everything that will happen after Jesus comes back for his church known as the rapture. What follows that in Mark chapter 13? That rapture event is differentiated from everything else that comes after it by the linguistic distinction of the phrase of the singular of that day. Singular in verse 32. Do you see the difference? We had in those days talking about the tribulation, and then talking about Jesus' full second coming. And then we have a linguistic distinction in verse 32, where Jesus all of a sudden starts talking about of that day, singular. So when Jesus talking about the fig tree in verses 28 through 32, and then the following parable we have today in verses 34 through 37, all of that connects to Jesus' rapture of his church. I can tell a lot of you are looking in the world is he talking about? Going back and forth. I know that was a lot of technical jargon. But what I, want, I wanted, what I wanted to do is I wanted to show you how and why the parable we're talking about today is in direct connection once again with the rapture event. Jesus returning for his church. And why that's important is that as we'll see, this parable is once again directed at those who make up the church that Jesus is coming back for. Whereas other parables have to do with the future kingdom of Jesus that he sets up on earth following his full second coming and gives warning to those who haven't yet put their faith and trust in Jesus for his salvation of their souls. This parable is is directed solely to believers in Jesus. The parable we're talking about today is directed solely to believers in Jesus, us, his church, in the here and now, as we await his return for us. Whereas in other parables, as we've seen, Jesus just starts out with, the kingdom is like. Do you see that in this parable? 
verses 34 through 37? No, you don't see that. Whereas in other parables, Jesus starts out with the kingdom is like, with no other information preceding the story that will follow, Jesus does start this parable with a little setup info, and that's what's in verse 33. He introduces this parable by saying in verse 33, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. This is why I reviewed what we covered more extensively when we covered Matthew 24's parables and illustrations about end times events. This is why I showed how verses 33 is talking about the rapture, or else we would have no context of what Jesus was referring to when he says the appointed time in verse 33, nor who he was talking to. All of that is crucial to understanding this parable as well as as well as possible and anything that we can take from it within its context. So all that said, what's Jesus referring to when he says the appointed time? The appointed time of what? Well, I already gave you the answer. The rapture. Mark says the same thing in verse 32 as Matthew says. That no one but the Father, not even the, not even the angels in his court in heaven, and not even the Son, knows the appointed time of the rapture. Matthew gives another version of this parable towards the end of Matthew 24. Matthew's version is more detailed, if you remember, as Matthew often is. And Mark's version is more of a summary. Matthew's version focused more on those in the church who looked and acted like their fellow Christian brothers and sisters, but who never actually surrendered their lives to Jesus. The fate of those people in the church, fake believers, Jesus reveals in Matthew, is the exact same fate as those who consciously reject Jesus and his salvation their entire lives. A place called hell, where as Jesus himself describes, there is eternal physical and emotional torment. In Mark's version, since he gives a more summarized version, it's mainly directed at actual believers in Jesus. That's who he focuses on. Those who recognize their sin separates them from God. That in God's perfect justice, we all deserve hell. But that God in his perfect love provided a way of escape from that. These are those who own for themselves that Jesus took their place on the cross and paid their sin debt of, uh, sin debt of death both deaths, the physical death and the second death, or hell. They believe that Jesus rose again on the third day and lives again to offer forgiveness of our sin to us if we just ask him for it. And they know that, as the Bible says, once they've done that, they've been adopted into God's family and they surrender the rest of their lives in living for him out of the love for all that he's done for them. To these believers, Jesus says in verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. And then Jesus in Mark's version goes on to say why in story form in verse 34. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. As I've been clear about, 
when we've covered passages in Scripture with this word in it before, when certain versions of the Bible translate this group of people termed slaves, this is not Jesus referring to and most certainly is not condoning slavery that we know of, where a person made in the image of God, beloved by God, is stripped of their basic human rights by other humans. That is not what Jesus is referring to here at all, nor is it what his listeners would have understood him as referring to. In fact, if you look at any given verse in Scripture where it seems like it condones that aforementioned slavery, if you really look at it hard within its context, you'll see that it clearly does not. New Testament or Old Testament, it does not matter. It's not there, no matter what critic of the Bible insists on it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells his Christian brothers and sisters who are enslaved in the Roman and Gentile world, if you can find a way to go free, do that. But at the same time, he wanted to tell them that if they couldn't, their earthly status was not the way that God saw them. God saw them as his children, and no matter what happened to them on earth, he would never forsake them. Time and time again, we actually see in God's word the affirmation of human value. Every human, from the moment of conception to last breath. At this point, Jesus' listeners are Jewish. And that aforementioned idea of slavery, as we understand it in our country, would have been completely abhorrent to them, as it should have been. Instead, this is what Jesus is referring to. In the Jewish world, for about 1,500 years at that point, there was no debt consolidating services, and there was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy. What there was, when it came to outstanding debt, was indentured servitude. When a person had so much debt owed to another person and they had no way of paying it, they would enter a contractual obligation with the owed person whereby they would work as a servant for that person for a set period of time. And when that period of time was over, they were to go free with that debt completely erased. Now that is nothing like what we may understand slavery in our country today. This practice is what Jesus is referring to here, and the word used here is the exact same word Paul uses to describe himself as an indentured servant of Jesus. In Paul's understanding, since Jesus paid his overwhelming sin debt on his behalf, he was obligated to serve Jesus for the rest of his life. And that's an understanding we're all called to as we live out the rest of our days on this earth. So at the beginning of this parable, a wealthy man goes on a business trip and leaves his household in the hands of his servants. Now notice what Mark includes that Matthew doesn't. In Mark, the wealthy businessman gives each of his servants a specific job to perform in his absence. A specific job to perform in his absence. We're going to come back to, to that in a minute. One of these servants was assigned the position of doorkeeper. The position of doorkeeper was an incredibly important position. According to one biblical scholar, the doorkeeper was understandably entrusted with, what do you think? House's keys, right? That's what they were entrusted with. He was the one who was in charge of who entered 
and who left the house. Not only was he supposed to keep would-be thieves and troublemakers out, but he also kept tabs on the other servants, noting who left the house, for what reason, and when they returned. No wonder he was commanded in verse 34 to stay on the alert. If anything happened during his watch, he was the one who was held responsible for letting any trouble in or letting anyone out who wasn't supposed to leave. In fact, Jesus gives this point-blank command in connection with the doorkeeper. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. As one biblical scholar noted, the only guarantee that Jesus gives in this illustration about the businessman's return is that he will return at some point at night. He will return at some point during the night. This is seen in the fact that Jesus uses the four divisions of the night watch in the Roman world. Since a work day was 12 hours, as we saw in the parable of the vineyard workers who were hired at different points of the 12-hour work day, the night was also 12 hours. The night watch, therefore, was divided into four quarters of three hours each. So the first watch was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., what Jesus calls the evening watch here. And the second watch was from 9 p.m. to midnight, what Jesus calls the midnight watch here. You would think the next watch of the night would be, uh, uh, you, would, you would think the, the watch of the night when the rooster crows, which comes next in verse 35, would be at dawn, but this is actually referring to the rooster crowing quarter from midnight to 3 a.m. You know, you might think, what in the world, why is that called the rooster crowing quarter? Many scholars have pointed out that it was common in Palestine for a rooster to start crowing around 12.30 a.m., which would fit perfectly in this time frame and give that watch its name. It wasn't always at dawn. It would often start as early as 12.30 a.m. The fourth watch from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. would be what Jesus refers to as morning. Around 6 a.m. would be the return to dawn, and the new work day. So that's how the night watch was divided up into four different watches. The warning Jesus gives to the doorkeeper is this, verse 36, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. At any point of the night, whoever was manning the door had to be alert, not only to keep an eye out for mischief, but if the businessman returned during the night and the doorkeeper would be, was asleep, he would be punished. He was not going to get away with that. As one biblical scholar noted, because of thieves on the road and other dangers at night, people would rarely travel roads at night. So this highlights the surprise factor of Jesus' return for his church. Jesus makes the statement in Matthew that he'll return when he's not expected to when no one's looking for him. For the doorkeeper, that would be during any one of the four night watches. Because of all the dangers associated with that, no one in their right mind would be traveling at night, let alone show up at their house at night. So this just goes to show how shocking 
and how much of a surprise the appointed time of Jesus' return for his church will be. As we talked about when we walked through Matthew 24, it will come absolutely out of nowhere. The whole point of the doorkeeper in this parable is not for us to interpret who this doorkeeper is. The doorkeeper is all of us. All those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior and King. We know the one who left the house and will be returning is Jesus. The main focus and point is on the surprise factor of Jesus' return. There will be absolutely no warning. As we talked about in Matthew 24, people will be going on as if it's just normal life. Day after day after day, as if nothing has changed for thousands of years. And then, boom, Jesus will start descending out of heaven, call up to himself all those who have accepted him as Savior, whether having already died at that point or who who is still alive, and all will be gathered up to be with him and go be with him for all of eternity. And then following that will be all of the horrific judgments associated with the Great Tribulation and then his full second coming. But that snatching away of his church, those believers in Jesus, known as the rapture, that will come absolutely out of nowhere with no warning. It could happen in two seconds from now. There is nothing stopping that from happening. That is Jesus' point, time after time after time, in all of these parables he gives. The shocking surprise factor of his return. There will be no warning. Actually, the warning's already been given right here. And in other parables having to do with this, we just need to pay attention to it. The point is for all of us to remain alert and not fall asleep in our work for God. That's what brings us back to the businessman assigning different jobs to all the servants he left to run his household in his absence. Again, obviously, the master of the household is Jesus, and the household is what? Right here, his church. He has gone away on a temporary business trip to get our heavenly homes ready for us and to intercede for us before the throne of the Father. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, he will return. He will return. While we have no clue as to when, the promise remains the same that he, re- he will return for his church someday. In his absence to help run his church, Jesus has given each and every one of his servants a job. Who are the servants? Everybody should be pointing a finger at themselves right now. We're raising their hand. We are the servants in this parable. Jesus has given each and every one of his servants a job in his absence. We talked about this topic a lot just before the pandemic hit. It was when we extensively discussed the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to those who surrender their lives to Jesus. All of these jobs and gifts are vital. They're various and vital to the life and growth of the church. And these gifts are so varied because they address all different sorts of needs. We all know the church is like the human body, like Paul points out. There are multiple different processes going on in our bodies all the time, any given moment of the day. And just like that, the church, there are multiple things going on. 
So there are varied gifts to address all of the multiple needs of the church. And they cannot be compared to one another because they're addressing different needs. Like just like how Paul says, you can't compare the eye, the eye to a foot. You just can't compare them. They're addressing different needs. The emphasis is on, are we using these spiritual gifts? Are we using the gifts the Holy Spirit has given to us to do the jobs our master has assigned for us to do? If you remember from that whole pre-pandemic series on spiritual gifts, there are more so-called miraculous gifts and more so-called non-miraculous ones. Both are upheld by the Apostle Paul as vital to the church. For our situation here at Fellowship Church, the so-called miraculous ones include physical healing, the working of miracles, and the prophetic relaying of a revelation of God. Before you think to yourself, okay, where's the nearest exit? I got a plan. <laughs> if you remember from that series in 1 Corinthians, none of these spiritual gifts, miraculous or non-miraculous, will fully cease to exist until Jesus returns for his church. Has that happened yet? No. However, the frequency with which they're used will depend on the gospel presence in a certain location or the spiritual growth of the church in that location. None of these gifts are these esoteric and non-understandable, weird and crazy out-of-body experiences that we've unfortunately been made, that they've unfortunately been made out to be over the course of the history of the church. Briefly put, if you remember, these are pretty easy to wrap your mind around if you understand them in a biblical context. When it comes to physical healing, for instance, do you find that when you pray for someone to experience physical, emotional, psychological, or spiritual healing, more often than not that person is healed? Then you probably have the spiritual gift of healing. Are you using it? Please, I plead with you. Use that gift for our church family that many will experience any healing they need to take place. Will you, from time to time, sense a leading by the Holy Spirit or even have a dream or revelation from God in which there's a message of edification that needs to be shared with the church? Share it. You probably have the gift of New Testament prophecy, which is the human attempt at relaying a revelation from God. A great place would be a setting like our prayer meeting that will resume this upcoming week on Wednesday evening. Especially during these unsettling, uncertain, and dark times, do messages of edification and encouragement and strengthening from God need to be shared with your brothers and sisters. When you pray for missionaries or others in dangerous or impossible situations, do you often find those prayers for deliverance or provision miraculously answered? Then you probably have the gift of working miracles. See, all these are pretty easy to wrap your mind around when you look at them in a biblical context. Wield that gift like a weapon in prayer, driving back the powers of darkness and being a prayerful instrument of God's unexplained miraculous power in the lives of people on this earth. 
People like this are often called prayer warriors because they battle the powers of hell every day in prayer for others, breaking addictions, breaking other chains, and breaking the strongholds that Satan's forces have on people. You may have the gift of service. It may not be as glamorous and headline-worthy as other so-called miraculous gifts, but it is absolutely crucial to the life and growth of the church. Use that gift as much as possible. Wherever there's work for the kingdom to be done, show up. Wherever there's work for the kingdom to be done, show up. Whether it's at our food pantry, or setting up tables, or cleaning up, or bringing a meal to someone in need, or physically helping someone in need, show up. Do the work that's physically needed to be done. Has God blessed you financially? Then he's given you the opportunity to serve him by using what is his to begin with and has entrusted to you to further his work in this world. Do you have the gift of teaching or leading? Use that gift to teach new believers the foundational truths of God's word or to teach the next generation about the love of Jesus and God's standards for our lives or mentor someone in the knowledge of God's word. You, it doesn't have to be in the church. It could be one-on-one -on -one with somebody else. This is imperative to the going forth of the growth of our church. If you're drawn by the Holy Spirit to bring encouragement to your Christian brothers and sisters, then you have the gift of encouragement. See, these aren't rocket science. Use your gift of encouragement. It's the understatement of the history of humankind to say that this is a tough world to follow Jesus in, right? Especially now. The enemy of our souls is fighting harder than ever to discourage believers, throw us off course, distract us, tire us out, and disqualify us from the right race of faith. Use your gift of encouragement to breathe strength and boldness into those who are overlooked, into those who are hurting, into those who are becoming weary. This isn't even an exhaustive list, everything that I've gone through. We know from Scripture that this is not an exhaustive list. But Scripture is very clear about the fact that every single believer in Jesus has been given a job by Jesus himself to do in his absence, and at least one gift by the Holy Spirit by which to do that, that job. We must all ask ourselves the questions, what is the job God has given to me to do, and what is the gift the Holy Spirit has given to me to do it? Every single one of us has to ask ourselves that question. What is the job Jesus has given to me to do, and what is the gift the Holy Spirit has given to me to do it? When we covered this at least seven months ago, you remember that I said you're not allowed to respond to these questions and just move on with your life. You're not allowed to do that. It's okay to not know right this very second, but it's not okay to go on with the rest of your life that way. Have an honest conversation with God and perhaps with a trusted friend who has a growing relationship with Jesus and figure it out. God will show you. 
And once you figure it out, run full speed ahead with it. Do something about it. Do something with it. And work hard at it. This parable is very clear. And especially in connection with the rest of Scripture, is very, very clear. And that Jesus has assigned each and every one of us a job to do in his absence for his church and to reach out to our community. In fact, what does Jesus end this parable with? Verse 37. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. That's what he ends this parable with. Be on the alert. Does that sound like you can just keep on coasting through the rest of your life? Never doing the job Jesus has given to you to do? Never using the gift the Holy Spirit has given to you to do that job? No. It says, be on the alert. Be on the alert. If you've grown lazy or uncaring in your walk with Jesus, wake up. If you've grown weary, be filled with new strength. If you're breathing and we're not joined with Jesus in the clouds, we have work to do. Figure out what it is and do it. Remember, when we've covered similar parables, when Jesus says, be on the alert, he does not mean quit life and spend the rest of it staring up at the sky. When Jesus says, be on the alert, he says, do the work I've given you to do. That's what he means when he says, be on the alert. Do the work I've given you to do. If there's a sin or something else in your life weighing you down or preventing you from running the race of faith the way Jesus has strengthened you to, get that right with God right now. Let not one of us be caught off guard when our master, the king, returns for us. Let not one of us be awakened from sleep by his return. Let not one of us be mortifyingly ashamed at being caught in active sin when he returns. Get what needs to be gotten right with God right now and start doing the work he has for us now. Again, we have no clue when Jesus will return for us. We just know he will. That will truly be a glorious day when we see our Savior and King face to face and he wipes every tear from our eyes, when he gives us new bodies free from decay, self-image issues, sickness, tormenting pain, and death, and when we're reunited with our loved ones who trusted Jesus and whose souls have already gone to be with Jesus. But in the meantime, brothers and sisters, we have work to do. Let every single one of us be filled with joy at his return, knowing we get to finally experience everything he's promised to us, and knowing we've been faithful and hardworking with what he's given to us to do right now. I want to end our time this morning. Don't close your Bible yet. I want to end our time this morning with a, with a couple of New Testament scripture verses that backs everything I've been saying up and let it inspire us and encourage us and embolden us to go forward. If we don't know what the job is that God has given to us, to figure it out with him. If we don't know what gift he's given to us to do that job, to figure that out with him and then do it. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. It is the one and only spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. In 1 Peter 4, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it, all, do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. And this is the point of all of it. All glory and power to him forever and ever Amen. So I ask all of you brothers and sisters here, amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable. We thank you for what it teaches us. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not even thought about maybe what job you've given to them, that they'd think about that. Lord, I pray that if there's, some, if there's anybody here who doesn't know the job that you've given to them and doesn't know what the gift you've given them to do that job, that they would figure that out with you, that they would go home, have a conversation with you, maybe have a conversation with somebody else who has a relationship with you, and figure it out. And then, Lord, I pray that you would empower them to move forward and go forward with your spirit and in the power of your spirit to do that job and to use that gift as powerfully and as mightily as possible. Lord, you promise, look and see what will happen when each of you use the gifts I've given to you, when each of you does the job I've given to you. We are the body of Christ. Each of us serves different capacities, different jobs, different positions, all to make the body work properly and functionally and healthfully and well and moving forward. So, Lord, I pray that you would give each and every one of us the power and the strength and the courage and the boldness to do what you've given to us to do. And I pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.